One of the uh, biggest challenges I, I remember from my early years of being ordained uh, was ending up going and speaking uh, in a completely different culture. Um, I ended up in Finland. Now, it was both the beginning and end of my international speaking ministry. Um, and uh, so I, I don't tell this as a great um, story of fame nor fortune, but I did end up um, in a tiny little town on the wheat, uh, west coast um, of Finland. And it felt to me like the absolute middle of nowhere. I flew into Helsinki and had to get on a tiny little turboprop plane and we bounced our way across uh, the country and landed. And there was a, a group of uh, Finnish, actually Swedish-speaking, apparently 8% of Finland speak Swedish as their first language, so it was the Swedish-speaking speaking Finnish teenagers. And um, we landed, um, and I, I realised that I had never done anything like this before, because uh, looking at it, this group of teens, they all spoke about four languages. Um, it does remind you very much of this tiny little bubble that we live in in England, of, of just talking English. Uh, but they, they spoke uh, Swedish, Finnish, Russian, many of them spoke German as well, and English was somewhere like a fourth or fifth language. Um, now, this, some of this was quite good to speak, because if I did manage to tell some sort of joke or say something funny, I generally got two laughs, because I got the laugh when they heard the joke in English, and then I got a slightly bigger laugh when it was then translated into Swedish. So I was quite enjoying this. It was quite tempting just to keep trying to roll them out to get that double laugh, if I'm honest. Um, but the particular challenge was words and actions that mean something much more significant in a different culture, in a different language, from my own. And I've told the story before of how I was just going through my talk with the, the, um, the interpreter beforehand. I was going to make this great play on the difference between grace and mercy, um, and how mercy is God choosing not to give us what we do deserve, and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And they looked at me and went, that's great. The only problem is in Swedish, there's only one word for grace and mercy. It was quite an interesting one. In fact, actually, I think it made the point better because we had to explain somehow the, the difference in the languages and so on. But that idea of being lost in translation, the idea that in one culture something will be hugely significant and another culture completely missed, is very relevant to the passage that we've got in front of us. Because you and I read this passage and we think, wow. He heals somebody who is paralysed. That's just an astonishing thought, that somebody would have the power of God to be able to do that. Actually, for the crowd who are listening, for the people who are gathered around this moment, the thing that they are truly astonished by is the words that for us just sort of slip by almost unnoticed, which are where he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, on one level, we take those words just so, sort of, in such a sort of laid-back, relaxed fashion. And I don't know whether that's because the notion of sin has become fairly dilute, or because the idea of forgiving somebody feels fairly weak. It's almost a sort of, oh, well, don't worry. To those who are listening, Jesus has said something, both at the same time astonishing and deeply offensive. The reason that those who are listening get so cross is because Jesus is taking the place literally in their minds, of God. Because for them, God was the only person who could forgive sin. He was saying, this thing that you know that God can only do, I'm going to do it right in front of you. And that's the centre of gravity around which this whole story revolves. And as a story, 
it provides us, I think, a fantastic visual aid, a fantastic worked picture of prayer. We're working our way through the Bible, looking at some prayers, but also some models for prayer. And I think this story both helps us to think about how we ourselves come to God in prayer, but especially in terms of where it lands, how we pray for others. Well, look, where might we put ourselves in this story? When you're reading a story, generally you get sucked in when you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody that's there. It doesn't matter how fantastical the story, you may not be able to imagine yourself as a hobbit, but the fact is if you read The Lord of the Rings, it only sort of works if you begin to imagine yourself as Frodo or Sam, um, or as Gandalf, if you have a bit more of a sense of overblown importance. Um, But wherever you're going to place yourself, you need to be in the story somewhere. Well, in this story, the place to start is lying on that mat. These friends have a friend, and in the days before wheelchairs, hospitals, benefits, anything like that, he was completely at the mercy of his friends and family. This man who was paralysed simply could do nothing. And nobody was going to care for him unless his friends did, unless his family did. He would literally die without their help. That's the context in which we are. That's the place to start. Put yourself on that mat. Feel the impact of being entirely, utterly, completely at the mercy of others, in need of others. I wonder how that makes you feel. It makes me squirm. I hate the idea of it. The thought of not being able to contribute to my own health and well-being. The thought of not being the one to make things happen. I'm a doer. I'm someone who likes to act. I sort of cope with what might happen tomorrow, thinking, well, I can probably handle that. I can probably deal with it. I can probably come up with an idea or work extra hard or pull a night shift. and It'll be okay. Put yourself on the mat. Ask the question, what does it feel like to need the mercy and grace of others, to be entirely in need. If you want a golden thread that runs all the way through the Bible, from the very first page of it to the very last page, I want to suggest that this mat and the paralysed man on it take us pretty close to that golden thread that links the whole thing together. And it's simply this. We need God. We need God. Such a simple sentence to say, seemingly so banal and trite, but it's pretty much the heart of the Bible. We don't feel like we need God most of the time. We hate the thought that we need God. Actually, we'd quite like to feel that God needed us. Look what I do. Look what a good parent I am. Look how good I am at work. Look what I can do for others. I'm going to do my bit. And if we're not even, if we're at the other end of the scale and we're sort of feeling pretty bad about ourselves, we still don't want to feel like we're a drag on God. The, the last thing we want to be is the one on the mat saying to God, I need you. It's a terrible feeling. But the Bible seems to say that unless we can get our heads and our hearts around being there on the mat, we miss out on the possibility of receiving the gift that we need. I mean, imagine, if you don't mind, just stepping into the story for a moment. Imagine you're on the mat, you're paralysed, you're completely at the mercy of others. And your friends come along and say, are we going to take you to Jesus? 
It's all right. Just, just, just like that. We're going to take you to Jesus. And you go, no, I don't need your help. I don't, I'm going to look an idiot. You're going to look, well, I mean, how are we going to get in there? It's, we, there's a massive crowd. No, 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 not up on the roof. I mean, how stupid might you have felt? How utterly sort of bonkers was this whole thing? They're going to go up on this flat roof. I mean, it, it works within the you know, culture. There was often steps up onto the flat roofs. People would often lay things on the flat roof to dry or go up there onto the roof in, in the sunshine. The fact is they went up there. They start tearing away at, the, at the, the mud and so on in the roof. And they lower this man on this mat down in front of Jesus. I mean, how would you have felt? My um, very good friend who lives in Amsterdam, when she had her... I think two, first two of her three children was living in one of those really tall um, terraces along by the rivers, uh, the canals in the centre of Amsterdam. Um, and um, for the most part, they do home births um, in the Netherlands, as far as I can tell. And we said to her, "Well, what happens if you suddenly need, you know, suddenly need sort of hospital help, you know, mid-birth?" And she said, "Well, they have this special system where they winch you out of the window." mid-labour. And she said, well, it, it happened to one of her friends. Um, I, you know, mid-labour, winched out the window, down. I mean, it's got something... It, it's worth... I mean, that sense of vulnerability, that sense of, of feeling completely, you know, a, a fool and in the, in the sort of being seen by everybody and completely in need... It gets you somewhere in the midst of, you know, here's this paralysed man. You know, the people who are ill in that society were seen as there must be something wrong that you've done wrong, especially those who are properly sort of at the mercy of society. There was that sense of, well, you, you or your family have done something to deserve it. You're at the bottom end of God's, God's love. Um, and here you are, you've ruined somebody's roof. You're disrupting Jesus' sermon. Um, and, and look at you. And he can't do anything about it. He's lying on this mat. He's lower down in front of Jesus. He simply is in need. And the Bible says that because of our sin, that's you. That's me. Now, what the Bible means by that is not because you have done a list of sins and somehow they've got too great and therefore you're paralysed. It simply says that sin is the thing that paralyses us. Sin is... Well, I always say it, don't I? Sorry to bore you, but sin is that little word with I in the middle of it. It's, it is a, a state of heart and of mind that simply puts me at the centre of the universe. That's what sin is. There are sins, which you can list if you like, but much more important is the heart, which is about me. And the Bible says that actually as we put I at the centre of the universe, it paralyses us. C.S. Lewis does this beautifully. If you ever read his book, The Great Divorce, which is a parable that he writes... He talks about that what sin does, it, it, it sort of curls us in on ourselves as if we become paralysed, curled up on ourselves. We can't look up, we can't look out, we become bent double and inwards. That's the picture language C.S. Lewis uses. Sin paralyses us. We can't do anything for God. We put ourselves first. We, we, pretty, we struggle to do things for other people. It's not that we're incapable of any good but we are incapable of absolute good and we are so capable of so much that is wrong. And the Bible says it paralyzes us. We are in need of God's grace. His free, unmerited, before we get to him, he gets to us, given without measure love. And that's what happens. 
I mean, it's a bonkers story in so many ways because here here are these four friends who've taken a huge risk. They're going to have to pay for this roof. Jesus might have rejected their friends. They lower him down. And they aren't taking him to Jesus for his sins to be forgiven. We ought to just get our heads around that. They're taking him to Jesus to be healed. So I can imagine that they're pretty excited to start with. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. So you've carried your friend. You've taken this huge risk. You've gone up onto the roof. You've ruined the roof. You've lowered him down. And you're waiting to see how Jesus will respond. What you're hoping is that Jesus will lay his hand on him, say, get up, take up your mat and walk. And what Jesus does is he looks up at them, he looks down at this man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, two huge explosions are going off in their head at that point, I would suggest. One is the whole, how can he say that? He's not God. And the other one is, you are kidding. He's paralysed. I mean, what are you doing, Jesus? We know that you forgive sin. We know, uh, sorry, we know that you heal people. You know, you've made the blind to see and you've made the lame to walk and you've cured lepers. Heal him. And of course we know that Jesus does, but they don't know that at that point. The end of the story hasn't happened yet. They don't know. They're in the middle of it. It simply shows us that as far as Jesus was concerned... The greatest need for any human being, whatever their physical or emotional or social needs, the greatest need is for the paralysis of sin to be healed. For that which would turn us in on ourselves, that would stop us living the lives we're meant to live, that would stop us looking out to the needs of others, and most of all, that would stop us looking up to God and receiving his love and being in that relationship with him that we were created for. The paralysis of sin needs cured, needs healed. Its consequences need dealt with. That's the greatest need of any human being. I wonder whether you think that's true. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It's okay. It's a sort of rhetorical question to think about. Do you actually believe that your greatest need, the very top of the list of all the things you could possibly ever want, is the thing that God wants to give you most, which is his gift of healing the paralysis of sin, of helping you to know him as a friend, as his daughter, as his son, for turning you outwards to a world in need, for helping your heart to be less about I at the centre and to be made whole. Do you really believe that's true? And then, of course, he does heal this man physically. He does give him what he feels he needs as well as what he really most needs. All of which has a massive impact on prayer. For a start, me remembering that I'm the man on the mat means that it takes out any idea that prayer is something I do for God that prayer is somehow some big sort of, um, uh, sort of crank I turn to make things happen. That somehow when I pray, God's going, oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you did that. Actually, prayer is my response to what God is already giving me. Prayer is my response to his love and his grace and his mercy. Prayer is the second act. God has made the first move. 
But secondly, when I pray, I mustn't miss the fact that what I should be praying for myself and for others, number one, is for the paralysis of sin to be healed. It's what I need most. It's what my family need most. It's what my friends need most. Within Count Me In, one of the things that we're nudging one another about is this commitment to tell the good news. And we've said we want to tell the good news in the words that we speak and in the things that we do. Actually, if it wasn't for that, we'd keep on adding words to this. And, you know, what I'd really like to say about that is, before we do any of that, that we should be praying that our friends and family will know the good news of Jesus. It's their greatest need. They need to know that Jesus lived for them and died for them and rose to give them new life. They need to know that this paralysis of sin can be healed. That they can have a friendship with God for themselves. Who are you praying for? It's a very simple thing. Could you think of three people? Seven if you want to do one a day, don't really mind. That you could be praying for. Each day, or one a day, they will find the healing of this paralysis of sin. That you, as their friend, now isn't this the best picture of prayer? You notice that little throwaway line. Matthew puts it in. It's interesting. Mark doesn't. Verse 2. Some men brought him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, when Jesus saw their faith. Often when I'm praying for a friend, I imagine this story. More often than anything else, actually, in the Gospels, I come back to this story. And if I'm praying for somebody that I know and love, I imagine myself as one of the friends. And I'm standing on the roof and I'm looking down through the broken bits. And I'm saying to Jesus, here's my friend. Here's my wife, my kids, whoever. They're paralysed at the moment. They can't help themselves. My little bit of faith, that mustard seed worth of faith, my sense of trust in you. I've trusted you enough to bring them to you in prayer. That's what we're talking about here. It's all they had. They, They just looked at Jesus and said, well, maybe Jesus can help. We'll take him. That's what prayer is. Maybe Jesus can help. And we lower our friends down. We often think about lifting people up to God, but this is a different way of looking. We lower our friends down or our family member down in front of Jesus and we say, help. And it says, he looked up and he saw their faith. So who are you praying for? Who do you know today who can't help themselves? Who are you going to bring to God in prayer? For them to know his grace and love, but also for him to meet their felt needs. He does heal him. He does heal the paralyzed man so he can get up, take up his mat and walk. We're allowed to pray for that too. That we're meant to pray for that too. Who do you know today who can't help themselves? If you're a parent, you have a particular, peculiar responsibility to pray for your children. You know their needs. Praying for them is perhaps your number one gift that you can give them. Praying for them each day. Lowering them down in front of Jesus and saying, please, bless, heal, give grace to my child. If you're a family member, part of a community, if you have friends 
Who of them needs your prayers? Who of them are effectively lying on a mat, need lifted up and taken to Jesus? And what I love about this story is the friends don't say anything. Not a single word. I think we get really hung up on prayer and thinking we've got to come up with the right words. We're so worried about getting it right. You know, we're going to get ourselves in the right position and in the right frame of mind and we're going to start with dear Lord and we're going to try and think of something that sounds churchy and appropriate and right. And all the friends do is break a roof, lower him down and look. Sometimes that's all prayer takes. Sometimes you simply have somebody on your heart and you weep. That's beautiful prayer, that is. The psalmist says that God collects our tears in a bottle. It's one of my favourite phrases in the whole Bible. Tears that you shed for somebody that you love. Do them in front of Jesus. It's your prayer. It might simply be that your heart is broken for somebody or full of somebody or you just can't get somebody out of your head. God gives you a little nudge to pray for somebody. A couple of us were talking um, before church today about somebody who rang or texted because God gave them a nudge. Notice those nudges. Somebody's on your mind, you can't work out why. Pray for them. Drop them a text to say that you're praying. You'll be amazed how often they come back and go, how did you know? How did you know to pray? So put yourself on the mat. Recognise you are on the mat, actually, that you need God. Come to terms with the fact that you are the paralysed one. Come to terms with the fact that actually your greatest need, our greatest need, and the people you might pray for, their greatest need, is to be healed of the paralysis of sin. And then ask yourself the question, well, who am I praying for? Who is my friend on the mat? Am I going to pray for them to know Jesus, to have the paralysis of sin healed? Well, I trust that that little tiny bit of faith, simply the willingness to bring them to Jesus, is going to be what Jesus looks at, even if they've got nothing to offer. And will I too bring to Jesus their felt needs, their need for healing, their need for freedom, their need for rescue.